I've had lightning strikes so close that I can feel the heat on my face. A bolt of lightning can burn five times hotter than the surface of the sun. The sound is so unbelievable when it's that close. It's just this Oh, it hits you in the chest. The shockwave hits you in the chest. That's George Karunas, storm chaser, extreme adventurer, and Royal Canadian Geographical Society explorer-in-residence. He's our guest on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June the 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that or history is very strong. Every clue low over every inch of the country that could be, we were hoping that he would fire at us. Welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast where we talk to the world's greatest explorers about their adventures and how Canada, its landscape, people, wildlife, and history have shaped their spirit of discovery. I'm your host, David McGuffin. My guest today is George Karunas. He's described himself as that guy hanging from the tree in the hurricane. As the host of award-winning television series like Angry Planet and Storm Hunters, Karunas has spent over two decades chasing some of the most extreme weather events in North America and around the world. If you can think of a major hurricane like Katrina or Sandy or a deadly tornado, Karunas was most likely there. And when he's not chasing storms, you can find him doing something like rappelling into the crater of an active volcano. Born and raised in Gatineau, Quebec, Karunas says his childhood spent biking around the hills and lakes of Gatineau Park was an inspiration for his career. I remember a few instances when I was a kid riding my bike around in, uh, in a hailstorm, thinking this is the coolest thing ever and getting pelted by these hailstones. Certainly, I, because it sticks in my brain, it's, it must have had some kind of influence. And because I had access to nature so easily, it was easy for me to be influenced by it. His adventures chasing powerful natural phenomena have taken Krunus to all seven continents and to over 70 countries in his role as broadcaster, explorer, educator, and public speaker. For our conversation, George Karunas and I sat down next to the fireplace in the Sir Christopher Andace reading room at the RCGS headquarters on 50 Sussex Drive, overlooking one of the world's great exploration routes, the Ottawa River. So storm chasing, you're, you're in a car, you're looking for tornadoes. You see the skies are black and this is prime time to get out there. What's that experience like? Well, if the skies are black, then <laughs> you should already be there. <laughs> we have to try and put ourselves in position while the sky is still blue, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to think ahead of the game where we think it's going to be. And that's the hard part. But once the storms start to fire up, they can go up really fast. And if you're in the right place, they're firing up nearby. So you, you race to get into position preferably out of the rain where you can see the base of the storm, see what's going on. And if you're lucky, that storm will produce a tornado in an open field, hopefully nowhere near a town or a city. And just to see that tremendous power 
of nature, this huge storm that can be twice the height of Mount Everest. And if it produces a tornado, this thing, it almost seems like they're alive because they're changing shape and changing size and they're, they're born, they grow, they strengthen, and then they die. Right. So there's a life cycle to all of these tornadoes. And to catch a tornado through its entire life cycle is really something special to see. So how close in have you gotten? I mean, there's the eye of the storm, obviously, which is the middle of it, which is calm, right? Is that right? Well, in a hurricane, yes. Yeah. You have that large, calm eye. And yeah. some, some really big tornadoes do have indications that they have an eye as yeah. well in some of them. Uh, how big is a really big tornado? The world record tornado, mm -hmm. which I was on, was El Reno, Oklahoma, back in 2013. And it was 2.6 miles wide, which is 4.3 kilometers. Wow. Huge. It's a big tornado right here. There's the left side. Wow. Wow. We're right up beside it, across the road, right ahead of us. Holy smokes. <laughs> well, that's the biggest anyone has ever seen. And, so any, they, and any weaker because it's that big? Or is it no, it was very strong, right. too. Very strong. And killed three colleagues of mine, as a matter of fact. Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, it's part of the game, unfortunately. It does happen. That was the first time that storm chasers had ever been killed by the storm they'd been chasing. And the thing with that particular tornado was it accelerated from about maybe 20 miles an hour forward speed to 40 miles an hour. So it sped up, went from a mile wide to 2.6 miles wide, and turned left all within less than one minute. Wow. So it was too big to outrun, and it was too strong to to outlast. So I was behind it, thankfully. And uh, they were trying to get in front to deploy some scientific probes. Uh, this is Tim Samaras and his crew, very well known and uh, very well respected. So you can do everything right and still fail. I, I'm, I'm concerned that it's gonna happen to more friends and colleagues. It's pretty much inevitable. Right, yeah. I mean, how do you manage that, knowing that that's the reality in your business? Here's the thing, it's not that dangerous. Chasing storms, Sounds dangerous, and all the highlights look dangerous, but the most dangerous part is driving on the highway. You spend hours and hours and days and weeks driving across Kansas, Nebraska, Saskatchewan, wherever, all over, and you just, statistically, you're probably gonna be in a car accident. Most storm chasers that have died have been killed by car accidents, right? So, Only three have been killed by a tornado, ever, and that was one event. Wow. So, yeah, it, it's something we have to think about, but it's, if you do, things right and you stay out of the path and you choose your escape routes well because you have to try and predict where the tornado is going to be five minutes from now and don't lock yourself in and put yourself in front of it then it's not that dangerous is there a movie do you think that's captured as closely to what your experience is being um i think twister was like the quintessential storm chaser movie and it was back in 1996 it was right before i started getting into it so yeah it was an influence was to it me yeah absolutely uh I remember seeing it in a big theater with really loud sound and it just it shook the whole theater and the visuals looked great and I thought that looks cool. And I already had an interest in science and nature and weather. So that was uh, sort of a bit of a kicker. And then about two years later, I did my very first tornado chase down in Oklahoma. So how'd that come about? Like how do you, is, is there an ad in a paper or like how do you <laughs> Yeah, there's no school for storm chasing. There's no there's no apprenticeship program, things like that. So what I did was I did some research. This is sort of the early days of the internet, early-ish. And I was able to find some storm chasers that would take people on to help them fund their own chase uh, for a fee. And you go and you spend two weeks with them and learn the ropes, 
right? So I thought, this is fantastic. I can go and learn from these guys who I'd already seen in nature documentaries and storm TV programs, things like that. So I'm going to go and hang out with these guys that to me are legends, guys like Charles Edwards and Jim Leonard. And so that's what I did. Went down there, 1998. Uh, we just so happened to have a National Geographic TV crew traveling with us at the same time, oh, which was very fortuitous for me. Mm-hmm. And actually, we had a hard time finding storms that year until the very end of the trip. Here we are in north central Oklahoma and tornado forms in the field right beside us. Perfect. It's within maybe 100 meters of us, really close. But then it turns and starts coming closer and we can see it digging into the ground and kicking up the dirt. And now it's coming right at us. So we have to take evasive maneuvers and turn around to get out of the path of this thing because it's coming. Yeah. But we get stuck in the ditch in the process of turning around. Oh my God. And now, of course, this tornado is bearing down on us. And we just uh, got out of there in time and the tornado crossed the road right where we were parked. (laughs) So that bit of adrenaline rush combined with having the TV crew there and it being my first experience with uh, chasing tornadoes really sort of solidified my desire. And I've been going back pretty much every year since for about 20 years. Right. So you're a young guy and you're looking at this and you're like, hey, this could be something I do. Is, Is it even at that moment? Are you like... People are As actually, a career? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, no, it still took some time. It took time, yeah. yeah. It was never an overnight thing. Mm. Uh, I started off as a musician. Mm-hmm. And I went to study music in school at Ottawa U mm-hmm. and then transitioned and became an audio engineer. Spent mm-hmm. years working in recording studios, including one of the biggest studios for film and television in Canada, the biggest in Canada. Which is that? A place called Deluxe. If you've ever watched a movie that says Color by Deluxe at the end, that company. So I was their technical manager for a couple of years. And so I learned about television and how all that worked. But I had this interest in storms. So I did my first storm chasing trip back then and got hooked. And then every year since, for many years, I was able to negotiate extra time off and sort of work my my day job around my storm chasing passion. And I would expand from tornadoes to hurricanes, forest fires, volcanoes, any extreme force of nature that I could uh, reach. And I would take extra time off. I would take unpaid time off. Wow. I would take all my overtime and I would save, I would bank my overtime at time and a half so that I could take more time off. And I remember in 2005, that was a big transition year for me. I was in Ethiopia for two weeks on a volcano expedition, spent a month tornado chasing, and also chased four separate major hurricanes, including Katrina, all in one year, still while holding down a full-time job. Wow. Yeah, that was a crazy year. It was busy. uh, Yeah, it's intense. Um, Katrina must have been incredible. What was that like being in that? I knew it was coming. The forecast was good. I was able to actually drive from Toronto for a day and a half down to the Gulf Coast, and we went to Gulfport, Mississippi which is this coastal shipping town. And it was where the right side of the hurricane was going to hit. And I always like to go for either that calm eye in the middle or the most violent part, which is usually in front of that eye or just to the right. To the right. Just to the right of the eye. So because you have those rotating winds in the hurricane, that low pressure system, Mm -hmm. and the hurricane's moving forward, you combine the rotational speed Mm -hmm. plus the forward speed in that right front quadrant. And that's exactly where we were. Wow. In a steel-reinforced concrete parking garage. It was basically a bunker. Yeah. 
the closest thing that I could find to a bunker. And as the storm hit, it took hours for it to slowly ramp up. As the wind got stronger and stronger, you could hear pieces of debris crashing around, windows smashing, the sound of the wind through the electrical wires, screaming, howling, the rumble of the garage shaking under our feet, and just the clatter of all the debris was unbelievably loud. And as it ramped up, the floodwaters came in. These hurricanes push a, a lump of seawater inland. This storm surge uh, can be the most damaging part of the storm. It's, it's actually more dangerous than the wind. And in Katrina, it was 10 meters above normal high tide. That's the height of a three-story building. So as that water came in, I was able to reposition my car up into the higher levels of the parking garage to get it out of the flood water. And I could reposition the car to place it so it wasn't in the direct wind, so I didn't smash the windows out from flying debris. So I made it through Katrina without any damage to my car whatsoever. Meanwhile, the entire town of Gulfport around me was smashed to bits. There were boats in the street, shipping containers tossed around like Legos. Um, there was a bank building that was swept by the waves so violently that the only thing that was left, and the only reason I knew it was a bank, was that the vault, the bank vault, was left. The rest of the building was down the street inside the Walmart. Amazing. Yeah, that's and power. So where does that rank in the, among the storms you've been in? That was for sure the strongest hurricane I've ever been in. And that world record size 4.3 kilometer wide tornado was the, the most violent tornado I've ever you've witnessed. Ever been in. You spend a lot of time with storms, and I just the trend seems to be these storms are more frequent and they're stronger, and there's a lot of debate about climate change, how that's impacting our Earth. And what's your view on that, Look, having seen the science of it, having seen it up close? It's a shame that there is still debate, really. The debate should be, how do we fix this? Not, is this even a problem, right? We, this should be front-page news every day. There should be alarm bells ringing. Uh, we are now just recently above 415 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is a place that we have never experienced as a species. We are in uncharted territory. And I'm very concerned that we're going to hit the tipping point where we can no longer do anything about it. In particular, I'm worried about the oceans. I'm worried about the temperature of the oceans and how that's affecting ecosystems, which then become this global problem because everything stems back to the ocean. I'm worried about permafrost melting in Canada, in Siberia, releasing methane gas, which is also a greenhouse gas. So there are huge concerns there. And I'm seeing these weather events that are used to be one in a hundred year events becoming one in 10 year events. The one in five year events are now one in once a year events, especially at the ends of the spectrum, the droughts and fires and the floods. Storms are a little more difficult to pinpoint. It's hard to say that this tornado was caused by climate change because we're looking at individual points of data on such a grand scale. But we can see the trends. And right now, we're just starting to understand the relationship between tornadoes and melting Arctic sea ice. It looks like there might be a uh, correlation between the two. So now, as more evidence is coming in, we're just getting more and more reinforcement of what we already know is that our weather patterns are being disrupted heavily and we're causing it and we know how to stop it. So I'm hopeful for the future. The classrooms that I visit are very well educated on what's going on in terms of climate change. The kids are very motivated about making a difference, about making the world a better place. And the reality is there's no planet B. We have no other choice. Trying to colonize Mars is far more, infinitely more difficult than it is to try and clean up Earth. 
we have water here, we have air here, we have resources here, we have people, we have smart people, we have the technology, as they say. So I so dearly would love to go to Mars myself. I know it's never going to happen. And I long for the day to see boots on Mars. It's going to be one of the greatest moments of human achievement. That is very important. But at the same time, we have to look inwards and make sure that we take care of our spaceship traveling through the, traveling through the cosmos here. Because we have no choice. I mean, there's obviously moments where you've thought, oh, I'm in deep trouble here. I may not get out of it. Has that moment happened for you? Yes. <laughs> uh, in, in different ways. It's interesting because I've had instances where I've had lightning strikes so close that I can feel the heat on my face. Wow. And that's, you know, frightening for a millisecond, right? And you realize you're okay and then it's done. Your heart rate goes back down and you're good. You might need to change your underwear. Yeah, yeah. Um, is the air crackling? What's that like then? Like, oh, it's unbelievable. Because there's so much energy. There's so much energy. We're talking 100 million volts, a bolt of lightning, maybe only as thick as your finger, but yeah. can burn five times hotter than the surface of the sun for a few milliseconds. And that's it, right? Sometimes you'll get the hair on the back of your arm stand up before a lightning strike hits, and that's, that's an indication that you're in a very bad place. Uh, but just the, the sound is so unbelievable when it's that close. It's just this and it just reverberates around and oh, it hits you in the chest. The shockwave hits you in the chest. It's unbelievable. Amazing. Yes, but it doesn't last long. Right. With a tornado, it could be coming towards you for maybe a few minutes and, and then you're okay. So you get that, that fear for a few minutes or so and a hurricane might last you a few hours. But the scariest encounter I ever had was on a caving expedition in Kenya. I was on Mount Elgon, which is right on the border between Kenya and Uganda. And there's a cave there called Kidum Cave. And it's, it's kind of famous for a few reasons. The uh, elephants that live in the, in the region, they travel in these herds and they go deep into the cave, about 100 meters into the back of the cave. And they use their tusks to scrape the cave walls and then they chew the, the rocks. It's old volcanic pyroclastic flow deposits. And they use that to get minerals in their diet. It's kind of like a salt lick for these elephants. It's, so it's highly unusual for elephants to be going It's inside. unique. Yeah. Nowhere else in the world does this ever happen. Amazing. So the idea was to go there and try and document this, right? Because that, that's an extreme thing in nature. So that's, that's in my wheelhouse. So we were there. But the problem was that this cave is also known as the epicenter for two outbreaks of Marburg hemorrhagic fever, which is related to the Ebola virus. It's, and similar? Very similar. So if you catch it, you get a fever, and about five days later, your internal organs, they liquefy, and then you end up bleeding them out of every orifice in your body. Yeah. So probably the worst way imaginable That's to die, the, yeah. right? <laughs> so let's go here. Yeah, yeah well done. <laughs> Let, let's do this. And uh, two people have died in this cave, but we don't know how the virus got into the people. We know it's somehow related to the bats, though. And there's a lot of bats, these Egyptian fruit bats that live in this cave. So we had protection. I had Tyvex coveralls and, and uh, surgical gloves, a respirator mask, eye protection, helmet, the whole works. And the dangerous things I do, I try to do in as safe a manner possible. And part of that is bringing experts along with me. So I had with me uh, a bat biologist who has studied the cave. He's mapped the cave. He knew he's the best person in the world to have with me. So these bats are in the back of the cave and we're walking towards them. And every step we take gets hotter and hotter because of the biomass of these bats. And the ammonia smell. 
from the bat guano is overwhelming, and we're wading through the bat guano. And of course, we're making an episode of uh, the old Angry Planet TV series that I used to host. And my cameraman needs light. He can't film in pitch black, so he flips on the light on his camera. And the bats freak out. Lots of bats? Thousands of bats. And now they're all streaming out of the cave through this choke point towards us. And they're scared, so they're evacuating their bladders and their bowels as they're flying past us. So we're getting hit by this ammonia wave of air and getting splattered by these bats, which is unpleasant to begin with. But then things take a turn from bad to worse. I look over at Don McFarland. He's my biologist on the expedition. And they're crashing into him, literally. And he grabs one. Like he grabbed a bat, basically out of thin air. So here I am in a moment of arrogance, thinking, I can do this too. So I step into the stream of bats, and now they're crashing into me. And foolish me, I grab one of them, and I want to show it to the camera so that they can get a close-up of the bat. It's a mother with a baby, carrying a baby. Mama's not too happy, and she bites through my glove and into my thumb. And it's a tiny little, tiny, tiny little wound. But in that moment, I didn't know if I had five days left to live. It's strong blood, though. Oh, it drew blood, absolutely. So I was almost sick to my stomach just thinking about it in that moment. We caught it all on video. This genuine reaction to me thinking I'm dead or going to die in the most horrible way imaginable over the next week. And there's nothing I can do. Zero. Other than like wrap it in a Band-Aid and hope for the best. There's no hospital nearby. There's no place to go. There's not even, even if there is, there's no vaccine, right? There's There's no vaccine. There's no 90% mortality rate between 50 and 90%. Jeez. And the two people that have caught it from this cave both died. So from this cave basically has 100% mortality with a small sample size. So here I am looking at my thumb with this little drop of blood going down it, thinking, what now? What do I do now? No one can prepare you for that. You can try to psychologically prepare yourself, but the visceral fear of staring down your own imminent horrible death, potentially. Yeah. Because at this point, you're well-versed in what it all means. Oh, I've done a lot of studying, right? I pride myself in the research I do before these expeditions. So I knew exactly what I was in for if this were to go south. And I figured, well, I'm in for a penny, I'm in for a pound. So I uh, spent the night in the cave waiting for these bats, or the the elephants, rather, Mm. to show up. And uh, they never did. They never did. (laughs) The, The elephants never showed up. So all I could do was just continue to wait and... Luckily, I was okay, but that was that was really, really scary. Yeah, that must have been terrifying. So you've been dropped into the craters of active volcanoes. Many. Just, yeah, many of them. And I'm just wondering what that experience is like for those of us who will probably never do it. <laughs> I do it so you don't have to. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, George. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I, I get many messages online saying, I love what you do. I would never do it. Thank you for letting me live vicariously through you. Um, so, yeah, volcanoes... It's amazing because they are the places on planet Earth where the planet is literally creating itself. Right? So you're seeing new land being created. This liquid rock is being belched out of, uh, out of these fissures, these holes in the ground. And to be able to witness that, it's a full sensory experience. Mm. You're feeling the ground shake. Mm. You're watching this glowing hot rock. You can smell the sulfur. Right. You can hear... The gurgling and the explosions, it, it literally uses up all your senses. You can taste the sulfur. Wow. It's unpleasant, but for me, when I, when I smell that, when I smell that sulfur, it's, it, 
it's like homecoming to me. It's like fresh baked bread to me. Right. I love it so much. It, it tells me that there's adventure coming. The types of volcanoes that I really like going to are the ones that have these lakes of lava. You can get explosive volcanoes like Mount St. Helens, for example. Right. It'll erupt every few hundred years or whatever. Blows the top off. Blows its top and it's really dangerous. You can't be within 50 kilometers of it. Right. right? And that's, that's one type of volcano, these big explosive stratovolcanoes. But then you have lava that's more fluid, that doesn't act as sticky. So it flows more like syrup or molasses mm. and it bubbles and gurgles and, and does these amazing things. And you can get close to it. And that's where things get really dramatic. So my favorite volcano in the world is in Vanuatu in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. It's uh, between Fiji and Australia. Okay. Not, not many people know of it, uh, yeah. but it's a beautiful country. It's one of the friendliest places on earth. Right. It's, it's sort of classic palm trees, beaches. Classic palm yeah. trees, beaches, Melanesian culture, mm. uh, roast pigs and drinking kava. It's, it's so classic. On Ambrom Island there, there's several lakes of lava inside these giant pits. And it's like a moonscape there. Does, does Ambrom mean something? I'm not sure exactly what it means, okay. but it's known locally as the Black Magic Island. Oh, nice. It has a, a, a reputation for having dark spirits. And the locals tend to avoid the volcano because a lot of them are afraid of it. So in goes George Karunas. So in I go, head first. <laughs> I've done about five or six expeditions to this, this island. And the main pit, which is called Merum, is about 1,200 feet deep, 400 meters. So you could transplant the Empire State Building, drop it to the bottom of the crater, and the tip would still be below ground. Like, it is huge. It's like a giant open pit mine. And at the bottom is a 60-meter-wide, boiling, roiling, churning lake of lava. And to get access, to get down to it, is really difficult. We have to helicopter in supplies, build a base camp at the summit with living quarters, a kitchen tent, the whole works, and then set up ropes in multiple stages because the ropes aren't long enough to reach all the way to the bottom. So we have to do two or three pitches of ropes down on overhangs, straight cliffs down to get down to the bottom. And it takes several hours worth of rappelling to get down to the bottom. And then once you're at the bottom, you can walk over to the edge and stand as close as humanly possible to this boiling lava. And I've got a special reflective aluminized heat suit that I wear. Yeah. And there's a lot of pictures on the internet of me wearing this heat suit. It looks like something from a steel mill or a spacesuit kind of thing. It looks like a spacesuit from like a 50s movie or totally something. Totally does. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, from a 1950s science, science fiction movie. Exactly. Totally. And uh, the, the first one I ever bought, I have three. The first one I ever got, I got it on eBay used for $100. <laughs> <laughs> Don't buy used safety equipment off of eBay. <laughs> what was it advertised as? A uh, thermal protective suit. So, yeah. So it may have been used in a steel mill. It probably was, yeah, yeah, in a foundry or a steel mill or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So you can buy anything online. You can <laughs> buy anything online. Yeah. Exactly. So you, you, if you're wearing one of these suits, you can go and you can stand on the very edge for several minutes at a time. You still feel the heat. It, it adds up, but it prolongs your exposure. Without it, you could stand there for maybe 10 or 15 seconds before you start to yeah. back away because you're getting burned. And I've actually had burns on my arm in the gap where the glove and the sleeve, sometimes there's a space, mm. and I've had burns on my arm there. Wow. So it's, it's extraordinarily hot. Being at the bottom, standing next to this thing, it sounds like waves crashing on the beach against rocks, but it's liquid rock. 
So how long do you, can you stay down? Uh, oh, several hours. Really? It is possible to stay overnight. Um, no way. But I have a bit of a formula for danger. Danger equals proximity times time. So the closer you are, the more dangerous it is. The more time you spend, the more dangerous it is. If you spend a lot of time very close, it's really dangerous. But the biggest danger is not the liquid rock, it's actually the, the falling rocks because it's a, such a dynamic environment. These avalanches of, of boulders can come crashing down at any time. And as a matter of fact, that volcano, that lava lake no longer exists. Back in December the entire summit collapsed because the lava lake drained out of a fissure on the side of the volcano, several kilometers away. All the lava poured out, leaving a void underneath, and the summit collapsed. Our helicopter landing pad is gone. Our base camp site where we set up our tents, gone. The lava lake, gone. It's like an atomic bomb went off, and you would not want to be at the bottom when that happens. Amazing. You'd Amazing. be buried underneath a mountain. There's a lot of great Karunas videos on online, and one I watched um, in preparing for this was uh, you you dropped into something called the Doorway to Hell. <laughs> My favorite expedition. <laughs> Which is in Turkmenistan, so a, kind of a very remote country on its own. Yes. Uh, and this is the Doorway to Hell in a very remote the, country in sort yeah. of Central Asia. And doorway to Hell. Yeah. Yeah, Darvaza means door. Yeah. And, uh, of course, let me paint a picture. Please. So Turkmenistan is a very uh, dry desert nation, former Soviet Republic, and it's just north of Iran, Central Asia. And it's known for its dictators. The former dictator, he renamed all the days of the week after his uh, family members and his favorite books. He outlawed beards at one point, and he built a giant gold statue of himself that always turned to face the sun, right? So real normal dictator yeah. stuff. Yeah. And actually more people go and visit North Korea than visit uh, Turkmenistan every year. Like, I think three times as many. So nobody goes here. And they were drilling for natural gas. It's the main resource of the country. So out in the desert, they're drilling away, and the drilling rig collapses into this vast sinkhole. It's about 100 feet deep and 230 feet across. And it's leaking methane gas, which is the main portion of, uh, of, of natural gas. So instead of capping it or doing an environmental assessment like they would do here, no. Nah, they just lit it on fire, thinking it would burn off in like a couple of days. Wow. That was 1971, and it's still burning today. So this, this doorway hole, the doorway to hell, it's this gaping, flaming pit that looks like a volcano that's out in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, in a country that very few people could find on a map. Right. And my mission was to go there and study it in the most extreme way possible. Mm -hmm. So my task was to gather soil samples from the very bottom of this crater. So there's two ways you could do that. You could send down some kind of remote controlled robot to gather samples, but where's the fun in that? Yeah, there's no fun. That's yeah. exactly, right? So the plan was go there. I had a science grant from National Geographic and a television crew. And it's funny because the TV show that we were filming was called Die Trying. <laughs> George, <laughs> tempting fate a little. Well, I, I had nothing to do with the naming of the show, and I protested heavily. It's like, no, I, I'm the guy that's trying, right? Yeah. So anyway, they vetoed my protests, and uh, here we are on this Die Trying project. So 
I was to stretch these fire-resistant ropes across the entire span of the crater and then go out to the middle yeah. in my heat suit with a special Kevlar harness. And Kevlar is the same material they use to make uh, bulletproof vests out of because a regular nylon harness would have just melted from the heat. Right. And self-contained air because we didn't know what, what the oxygen levels were like at the bottom of this crater. No one had ever been there to the bottom. So I had a fireman's self-contained air tank with a full face mask, the whole works. And I go out on these pulleys and then I rappel down to the bottom. And the idea was to gather soil samples to look for life, bacterial, microbiological life. Right. And it's flames all flames around Flames all around. Yeah. Like a coliseum of fire. It was, to me, a very important mission. And it was a world's first. I love doing world's first. It's, it's my favorite thing in the world is doing something that no one's ever done before. Right. Right. So once I set foot at the bottom, it felt, it must be like what it was like to stand, set foot on the moon. And the orange glow of the fire, we did it at night. Oh, yeah. So the orange glow lit up the walls of the crater. Yeah. And I could feel the heat and the mask, you're breathing and you sound like Darth Vader. And I went to start digging in the soil to grab some samples. And as I dig, I'm opening up new vents. So the fire is now jumping over and coming out of the hole that I'm digging. Wow. And this is happening all around me. And I know I've only got about 17 minutes worth of air to do this. That's it. And I measured a, uh, a ground temperature of 400 Celsius. That's over 700 Fahrenheit. So you're walking on that? Well, I was walking up to it. We had several days of studying the crater before I was able to drop down inside. So we took a probe, a special temperature probe, and we measured the temperature in, in various spots. And what we discovered is that the fire heats the air and it comes up the edges of the crater and then cooler air drops down in the middle like a big donut. Oh, interesting. So I was able to drop down in the cool part and then sort of maneuver around, tethered with a rope, right. special heat resistant rope. And I use air quotes there when I say resistant. And uh, so I was able to walk around to the, these very hot areas, again, for short periods of time. And then get out. Get out. Yeah. But 400 degrees, I mean, people cook meals at 400 degrees. Oh, yeah, you can burn meals with 400 <laughs> yeah, degrees easily. I, I, yeah, exactly. I've done that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it was, it was like being in an oven. It, it wasn't like being in an oven. It was an oven. Right. Absolutely. And I was basically wearing a head-to-toe oven mitt, big silver oven mitt. I felt like a baked potato, actually. So you took samples, and what did you find from that? Yeah, so we were successful in, on every stage of the expedition. So we uh, were able to accomplish this uh, world's first. I got the Guinness... A certificate hanging above my desk, which is nice. But the samples that we brought back, I had them DNA uh, analyzed in Chicago, and they found several types of bacteria living at the bottom of the crater that were not found anywhere else uh, in the surrounding soil. And they weren't found in the existing DNA database. So yes. we found new life living this in this extreme environment. Some of it was metabolizing or actually eating the methane gas. So really exotic stuff, stuff that we wouldn't even... Like barely recognizes life, but it's there. Brilliant. Just really the, cool. The adaptability of life, right? Life finds a way, as they say in Jurassic Park. My next question for George Krunus was about how he manages fear when he inserts himself into all these life-threatening situations. Fear and I have a very close personal relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I've spent a lot of time being afraid, but there's a big difference between fear and panic. Right? Panic is the loss of control because fear has overwhelmed you for whatever reason. B 
being afraid to do something is a great motivator. And it's a really good way to, to sharpen yourself. If you're not afraid at least a little bit, then you're not doing something that's challenging. And so I use it as a tool. When I get afraid, it, it's, it's time for me to take action. So to double check my equipment or, or check in with my team or to change my strategy in some way. And being afraid is something that I, I love to do. Um, I like to challenge myself by doing new things, bigger and better, you know. And that's become a, a, a companion of mine, fear has become. Yeah. Yeah. I don't try to avoid it. I try to not, not really manage it, but just but have a relationship with it. So what's the trick to avoiding flipping from fear to panic? Um, study, experience, team, technology. The better of those four things that you have, the less likely you are to flip to panic, especially experience and training. Right. Those two things are, are, are so important, tantamount, when it comes to managing fear in extreme situations, for sure. The more you've done something, the more familiar you are with it, the less likely you are to be freaked out by it. But at the same time, you can become complacent. So you always have to keep checking in with yourself or with your other teammates to make sure that you're not being arrogant because arrogance will also get you killed. Panic and arrogance are the two uh, emotions that I try to avoid at all costs. You are an explorer in residence for the, the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and here we are in the 21st century a lot of exploration has already happened in our history. Yes. What does it mean to be an explorer now? Well, I, I would say that there's still plenty to explore. Uh, for me, personally, my genre of exploration is to travel the world, document the most extreme places, and share what I've seen with as many people as possible. So I explore these moments in time at certain places where there are extreme natural forces. So the, the exact spot where the tornado is touching down, the exact spot where the hurricane is making landfall, the point where that volcano is erupting, where that avalanche is coming down the mountain. And it's those moments in time that I like to document to show people how powerful Mother Nature is. I use it to, for me to connect with nature myself personally and to show people how bad bad can be to hopefully um, influence them to evacuate the next time something bad happens, to heed the warnings, but also to inspire people to get outside. It's been proven that going out in nature, just going to the park, will relieve stress and depression, right? So get out there, yeah. you know? There's so much to see. You don't have to do the crazy stuff that I do, but just get out there and, and enjoy nature and do something you've never done before. Do something that's gonna scare you a little bit, right? Is there, when you're going to these places, is there a piece of equipment, a good luck charm, something that you just bring with you all the time? Or? Yeah, I've got a few things, actually. I always carry my RCGS flag with me, so it's traveled with me all over the world in various uh, countries and such. But uh, in terms of tools and sort of tech, it, it depends on which type of expedition I'm doing. If I'm doing a cave expedition in Madagascar, I have different gear, whether I'm doing tornado chasing or climbing a volcano. But I always have a um, multi-tool. It's made by Leatherman. It's called the Tread. I don't even know if they make these still anymore, but it, it's a bracelet that's filled with screwdriver tips and wrenches, and I use it all the time. It's this industrial-looking thing. It looks like a tank tread, and uh, that goes pretty much everywhere. And the other thing is, uh, is there a favorite place for you in Canada, a place that you maybe go to when you're trying to find a happy place, which I'm sure you have to do from time to time <laughs> in the places you are, but is there a... Of course, growing up here in this region, the Ottawa region, the Gatineau 
Park, Gatineau Hills, holds a special place for me because that's where I was introduced to nature. But every time I go north to Yukon or to Nunavut up there, driving on the ice road up to Tuktoyuktuk in the middle of winter, watching the northern lights, the Canadian north is just so special, so magical. I implore every Canadian, get up there once in your life. Get above, get above 60 preferably above 6633, north of the Arctic Circle, if you can. This country gets more beautiful the further north you go. It really does seem to. You go from the industrial south, we're hugging the U.S. border, and the further north you go, it just seems to get more sparse, and you get more nature, more wildlife. The sky gets bigger. Everything gets bigger. The northern lights start to show up. And just being there at night in the freezing cold, looking up at the sky and seeing the northern lights dancing above Dawson City or Whitehorse. It's just, it's magic. Mm. So beautiful. And you get that sense of awe without the danger of going to a a volcano or a storm. And it's something that every Canadian can do. That's great. Well, George Karunas, thank you very much. My pleasure. For coming in and doing this with us. That was RCGS Explorer in Residence, George Karunas on Explore. Music and production for Explore is by Robin Dumas of SoundShield Studios. And we'd like to hear from you. Send us your comments or questions to explore at canadiangeographic.ca. And want even more great Canadian Geographic content? Visit cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe to order Canadian Geographic magazine. A subscription gets you six issues of the magazine each year with stories that will entertain, surprise, and educate you about the remarkable Canadian landscape, wildlife, and people. Subscribers also get bonus issues of Canadian Geographic Travel Magazine and a free wall map of this great country of ours. Subscribe today at cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe.